Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a good king, Jesus. Lord God, you're a God who loves us, who cares for us, who teaches us, who disciplines us. Lord God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now, God, just as we hear your word, because it's your word, Jesus. It's the word that you've given to instruct us in our lives, Father God. Let us be prepared to be convicted. Let us be prepared to be offended, Lord God. But most of all, let your light shine through the words that are shared, Jesus. You're a good God. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. It's lovely to see you all this morning. It's really lovely to see everybody. Um, before we start, I'm just going to give us a quick intro. We're going to be looking at the book of Romans. We're carrying this series on. Um, so, what would it be like to live as a Christian in first century Rome? You'd be in the capital city of the world empire. The greatest sports, art, philosophy, politics are centred in your city. You can hear a dozen languages in your streets and religions of all sorts blended in the stew. You have heard of Christianity from a Jew who was present at an incredible event some 1,300 miles away in Jerusalem when a room shook, fire appeared, and a man called Jesus died and rose again. You believe the story. Now what? What have you committed to? What is this faith? And Paul's letter, Romans, offers some answers. Now, it's seen in two ways, Romans. It seems almost a, an introduction to the Christian faith, but it's also packed with endless, deep theological ideas within there. Romans was written by Paul, who was once somebody who murdered Christians, who had a miraculous conversion and became a Christian himself. It's the largest book in the New Testament, and the main emphasis on it is human sin and God's righteousness. God's righteousness. So today, we're going to look at Romans 1.18 to 2.16. So if you could turn your Bibles, please. Romans 1.18 to 2.16. Brace yourself, it's a long one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, 
boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those things who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his work. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Amen. It's going to be really light-hearted today, eh? <laughs> I joke. But it does make for uncomfortable reading, doesn't it? It does. We don't like to hear about sin. We don't like to hear about the things that we're doing wrong. Often this is shirted away in the pulpit. People don't like to talk. But as we work through the book of Romans, we have to come to this point. We have to address this. We have to talk about it. Whenever you read a book on Romans, it's, it's almost like you're being taken into the heavenly courts, God's court. And here, humankind is sat in God's courtroom. It's on trial. What's the charge? Verse 17 provides a clue. The righteous shall live by faith. And yet man is unrighteous. We've seen that there. That's why he's on trial. You see, Paul here isn't giving us a kick in. He's not trying to tear us down. He's not trying to bash us, make us feel worthless. He's actually used this area of the Bible for a reason. You see, we only truly understand God's righteousness when we realize how unrighteous we are. I'll say that again. We only truly understand God's righteousness when we realize how unrighteous we are. And Paul here, in effect, is bringing the prosecutioner's case against mankind. So what we're going to do is this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at the prosecution case against mankind and see what we can pick out and what we can learn. So we're going to go back to verse 18 to 20. All the way at the start again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There, it's clear. God has revealed himself to us, whether it be in creation or in our lives. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. God revealed himself, and he still does to mankind. But something has gone wrong. Verse 18 tells us what went wrong. The word suppress, we suppress the truth. And the translation for the word suppress means to physically hold down, to physically stop it. We knew God, and we still do but we choose to fight it. Do we see this now? Yeah, all around us. So the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, the first prosecution case is that we suppress the truth. And that's something that we need to look at our own lives and see. Is there any areas of our lives where we're doing this, where we're suppressing the truth that God has given to us? If you're not a Christian, you often find when you speak to people, who have heard the gospel, that it kind of plays in your mind. You just can't shake it. It's God working in your life. Are you physically suppressing it? Are you listening to it? Are you listening to what God is revealing? And those of us who've been Christians for a while, is there any areas in our life where God is trying to reveal truth to you, but you're suppressing it? You don't want to hear it. We need to allow him chance to reveal himself to us and not suppress the truth that he gives us. And honestly, sometimes we don't like what he says. <laughs> but he's for our good because he loves us. He's a God who loves us and we must never forget that. The second charge, so the first charge is that we suppress the truth. The second charge we pick out in verse 21 to 23. So I'm just going to read it again. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God. They did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. Thanks, mate. <laughs> but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Here we see the second charge, not honouring God. You see, it's one thing to know about God, but it's another to truly honour him in our lives. It requires sacrifice. This is where hearing the truth comes in. Here we see Paul in verse 21 making it clear that God was known but not truly honoured. He wasn't honoured. God wasn't given the thanks. God still isn't given the thanks for the things that he's blessed us with. God isn't acknowledged. God isn't recognised, which led, we're told, to foolishness. What does verse 22 tell us? They claimed to be wise, but were foolish. And there's something interesting here, as Paul writes this, that we can pick out. Rome at the time was the hub of the new world. It was where the new ideas, the new philosophies, the new politics, the new laws, the new inventions came out on. But Paul is making it really clear. They claimed to be wise, but were foolish. Man, we are built to worship. And when God isn't worshipped, when we find worship in other things, 
we find a hole that needs to be filled. And it's this that leads to this concept of idolatry. Focusing on something else instead of God. Putting something else as the focus of our attention instead of God. And you know, sometimes it's not always obvious. I watched a program a couple of years ago about um, a man who came from nothing. He was absolutely nothing. Um, and slowly but surely, he had a goal to make a million pounds with a business. So he started, built his empire up, made a million. And he'd always said, when I got to a million, I'm going to retire. When he got to a million, what did he want? Two million. <laughs> when he got to two million, five million, a billion. That became the focus of his worship. We need to be careful of this. C.S. Lewis in the book Screwtape Letters, I'd really encourage you to read this, says the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings or signposts. This is idolatry, which mankind is guilty of. It's dangerous, it's slight, it's gradual. So we need to ask ourselves, who or what are we worshipping? What's the focus of our attention? What's the focus of our desires? Just have a moment just to think to yourself. Just want to take a drink. What is the focus of your desire? A bit shaky there. We're told in Proverbs that true wisdom comes from God. And I'd really encourage you to read Proverbs. It's full of truths about how we can sacrifice our life to God. It's very easy for the object of our affection to turn into work. It's very easy for the object of our affection to turn into cars. Very easy for the object of our affection to turn to even church, where we throw ourselves into so much church that we don't actually spend time worshipping God and focusing on God. To worship God requires daily sacrifice. Acknowledgement, trust in God. Are we ensuring we fit time to spend time with God? Or are we allowing an opportunity for something to replace our object of worship? When we go home, are we just chucking on the TV? I do that. Or are we spending time with God? When we're driving to work, are we listening to the radio or listening to songs? Or listening to something that's going to build us in our faith? What is the object of our worship? So Paul's brought the first two arguments, the first two cases. We suppress the truth. We create idols instead of God. And the third one comes down to indulgence. So we're just going to go back to 24 to 32. Now I'm reading these back just because we've read such a large portion of text we can lose where we're up to. So I'm just going to go back and read it again. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Pretty big list, eh? But the second charge and this charge are linked really closely. You see, as soon as we don't worship God, indulgence becomes our focus of worship. Self-gratification becomes the most important thing in our life. And you know, we see this everywhere. I've heard at least four or five this week. I only have one life, so I'm going to live it. As long as you're happy. Who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. Don't care what others think. Indulgence is a slippery slope, and it was the devil's intention from the start. We see in Genesis 3 verse 5, the devil told Adam and Eve, you shall be as gods. And all those sins are examples of indulgence. They make us feel temporarily better, have temporary worth. I found a brilliant quote about this. Prosperity knits a man to the world, chasing things of the world knits a man to the world. He feels he is finding his place in it when reality, it's finding its place in him. Now it's important here that we could easily focus on one or two of those big sins. But actually we need to remember all of these are examples of unrighteousness. We cannot sit here and say, look what they are doing, that's not right because there's many on there that we have all probably ticked off. Paul here is reminding us that all have fallen short not just one group of people, all of us have fallen short, and it's quite sobering. But we need to check our hearts. We need to check where we are. Are we ticking all these? In which case, we probably need to do something about it. How many fruits of the Spirit are we seeing in our lives? True discipleship requires us to make sacrifice, whichever one of those sins we struggle with, or many of them, to put his interests above our own, to put his calling, his desires above our own, to acknowledge him as our Lord and rely on him. Quite sobering, isn't it? Particularly when we go through that list. I was going through and going, oh, guilty, guilty, guilty. But actually, it's really important that we talk about this, that we understand how unrighteous we are, and we'll see why it's important a little bit later. And finally, the final case of why we are unrighteous. Verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We've got no regret. We don't regret. And we see it time and time again in the Bible. Not only did we indulge ourselves in sin, we encouraged others to do the same. And this is an area that we need to be really careful of in our lives, going above and beyond to make sure we're protecting ourselves. The only way to do this, to make sure that we are walking right with God, is to spend time in his word, to spend time listening to him, reading the Bible, making sure our lives are grounded in biblical concepts, in biblical teaching, in biblical ideas. We need to ensure that we ourselves first are promoting the right things in our lives before we can tell others even when it isn't easy. It's very easy to look at other people and say, they're doing that, let's criticise them. What's the plank in your eye? 
And here, Paul is giving us a bit of tough love because true love is truthful. And there are many things here that are difficult to discuss. Adultery, greed, homosexuality, gossip, slandering. But we live in a society now, an age now, where we're taught that God is love. Therefore, we can do what we want. But this isn't what Paul means here, or God either. And when we just jump to 2 verse 4, we can see that this is addressed. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? A true understanding of Christ, a true understanding of who he is, what he has done for us, and the sacrifice we need to make requires a change, a heartfelt change. God doesn't change to our ways. If we truly know him, if we truly understand what he's done for us, we want to submit to his ways. And that's a key thing we need to just be careful of there. God is love, but also here, he's righteous and he's a judge. And we need to just be mindful of that and how we convey that to other people. We see a key phrase pop up throughout all those charges. God gave them up. God permitted mankind to continue in their foolish ways and reap the consequences of, the, of their sin. And this is a really hard thing to read. But he doesn't owe us anything. He's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. He's made himself apparent. He's made himself there so that we can worship him. And yet we choose not to. And God clearly says, and Paul makes it clear, sorry, in, the, in chapter 2, that he shows no partiality. Both gen, Gentile, Greek, Jew, all guilty. And not only is God the judge, but he's fair. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If we were sat in the courtroom now, if we were on the jury, what would we say? Man is stood there, the charges have been read out, we're all guilty of them. Guilty, not guilty. Guilty. And there's nothing we can do, nothing we can do to stop that charges against us. We can't work any harder. We can't read the Bible anymore. We can't praise God more and more and more. There is nothing we can physically do that can make those charges be dropped. Because it's not about us. It's about what God has done for us. And God has provided a way for those charges to be dropped because he sent Jesus. But it requires sacrifice on our part. What we can't do is we can't stand and say, God loves me so I can do what I want. Paul's made that really clear. It requires sacrifice. It requires us to have a heartfelt change. But the beauty of this is, as I said at the start, we can't understand God's righteousness till we understand how unrighteous we are. And we've just read a list there of many, many things we do wrong, and yet still, Jesus came to die for us, <laughs> to stand in our place and say, they're right with God. Despite all those things that we do, despite all the things, all the sins, all the things, all the, the slaps in the face we've given God, 
still he sent his son, his precious son to die for us. It's amazing. Jesus stands on our half. He took the sin on his shoulders. It was him who died for us. It's him who made us right with God. But we need to embrace it and change for it. There was, I could have made five or six preaches out of that. <laughs> Gone on for about half an hour. I could have made about five or six preaches, but I just felt that that was something that God really put on my heart, particularly to do with that it's not just us, it's what God has done. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. But also just a reminder, I just feel God saying it now as well. God is love, but it requires a change from us. We can't stand before God and continue in our old ways and say, oh, God is love, it's all right. No, it requires a change, a heartfelt change. We need to submit to his ways, not the other way around. I'm going to just finish there, because there's loads more we could go on to, but it's just fitting it in with the time. But I'd really, really just encourage you, if there's anything I've shared there, I love it when people come and ask me questions. Every time I've been up, somebody's come and asked me a question. I love it. If you've got any questions that you want to talk about, anything that you want to wrestle with, or something that you don't even agree with, happy. Come and just talk to me. I'd love to hear your ideas. We'll just have a quick prayer. Lord God, reading about our sin, reading about how we stand convicted in your court is not an easy read. But Lord God, we thank you that despite all those charges brought against us, despite the fact that we have no way of redeeming ourselves on our own, you sent your son to die for us. You sent your son to make us free with you. We're told there is no condemnation in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for that. Lord God, for those of us who are wrestling with any of those sins, Lord God, any of those things that make us unrighteous, Lord God, we pray that you'd give us the strength to persevere. You'd give us the humbleness to admit that we need to change. And you'd give us the strength and help us to hear your teaching so that we can enact the change that's needed. Lord God, we thank you that we could be thrown into darkness and cast away. But you love us so much that you sent your son to die that all we have to do is say, God, I can't do it, I need you. And we're right with you. It's scandalous. It's so easy. Because you love us so much, Father. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for the works you've done in our lives, Jesus. We thank you for the way that we have found you. And for those of us who don't know you yet, Lord God, we pray that those people, Lord God, would hear your calling, that we won't suppress the truth in our lives. You're a good God. You're a God who's truth. You're a God who loves us and forgives us. We thank you, Father God. Hallelujah. Amen.